I wonder what the biggest area of stress, fear, or anxiety is in your life right now. I know that in a room this large, with the week that some of you have had, there's no shortage of stress or anxiety or fear. This is part of life. This is just a common fact of life. A recent study showed that 77% of Americans regularly experience physical symptoms due to stress. The top stressors in the study included pressure at your job, money, health, relationships, poor nutrition, media overload, and sleep deprivation. None of those are particularly surprising because stress and anxiety are part of life. And therefore, it makes sense that as as people have sought to live in a way that is uh, healthy and helpful, that one of the most sought-after things in our human existence is peace. A person once said that peace does not mean to be in a place where there's no noise, where there's no trouble or hard work. Peace means to be in the midst of those things and still be calm in your heart. Martin Luther once said, grace forgives sins and peace stills the conscience. And a number of years ago, there was a doctor on the West Coast who took an informal poll among his patients to find out what wish each one could have if they were granted. And the tally was very interesting. He said that 87% of his patients said that Peace of mind was their paramount goal in life. As we move through the book of Philippians, we near the end. We've seen Paul take us on this journey of of what it means to move forward, to have forward progress in a relationship with God in this life. And today we come to this part in chapter four where there's a string of encouragements to people. And and he's touching in these areas of encouragement, he's touching on the areas of life that most often give us stress, anxiety, and fear. And the thread that addresses, that he addresses through all of them is that peace, the peace of God is possible in all of these pockets of our life. And so turn with me with you to Philippians chapter four. Grab a Bible. If you don't have one with you, grab that pew Bible in front of you. Philippians four is found on page 982. And we're just gonna read verses two through nine. We do encourage you to open the scriptures and follow along this morning. So please look with me at verse two. Paul says this. I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, 
whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. The peace of God rests where the God of peace reigns. The peace of God rests in your life where the God of peace reigns. We see here that Paul addresses these three different areas of our life. And the first one that he says is, he implies that the peace of God is possible in your relationships. If you look with me at verse 2, we see that there are these two women in the church, Euodia and Syntyche, who are in the middle of some kind of disagreement. This disagreement's probably been long-standing, and it's affecting the unity and harmony in the local church. Now, I know that it might be a surprise to you to see Paul call out these types of disagreements for that church to see, and for all of Christian history to see, because I know it's probably a surprise to you that sometimes, just sometimes, it's probably out of your realm of experience, but sometimes people in the church don't get along. And there are a number of things that we don't get along about. Some of them are very serious in nature. Others are rather absurd in nature. But nevertheless, when you have a variety of people coming from all different backgrounds with different preferences, sometimes people don't get along. I thought for fun we would just talk about a couple of the absurd ones that I've seen in other churches recently. One church had an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. I think somewhere in the Bible it talks about the worship pastor's beard being no more than two inches longer than the senior pastor's beard, but I'm not exactly sure what the reference is on that. One church had a fight of whether or not they would build a children's playground or if they would use that very same land as a cemetery. Talk about two very different visions for ministry. I was dying to find out which one they chose. One church had a dispute because in the Lord's Supper they had cran grape juice instead of grape juice is what what they were accustomed to. Another church had an argument of whether or not they should allow deviled eggs at the church meeting. I think it was that same church that had a problem with whether or not they should call that meeting a potluck or a pot blessing. I'm not exactly sure. One church had an argument in a business meeting about whether they should choose to purchase a weed whacker or not. It took actually two business meetings to resolve. And that was really a wacky bunch of people. (laughs) Two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee that they used. In one of the churches, they switched from Folgers to Starbucks. And in the other church, they were within the same brand, but they moved from a, from a medium roast to a more robust or darker roast. I think it was at that second church that members actually left the church because of the type of coffee. 
So when we look at Philippians chapter four and we see these two women in the middle of conflict and we don't know what the conflict actually is, it doesn't take us, it doesn't take too much to imagine that it probably wasn't the most serious thing, but it probably was causing disruption in the life of the church. We know a number of things about this conflict. First, we see that Paul entreats these two women. He doesn't come in heavy-handed with them, but he begs them to pursue unity. Secondly, we know that both of these women are believers in the Lord Jesus, that he calls them uh, ones who have labored side by side with him in the gospel. He calls them women whose name is written in the book of life. And thirdly, we can derive, and maybe most importantly, that this disagreement between the two women is not a deep theological one. We see in other places that Paul is vehemently uh, guarding against false teaching. And then in other places in scripture, there's an encouragement to actually distance yourself from people who have errant or false belief. There's no such warning here. Paul is not calling them to set core truths aside for the sake of rebuilding or maintaining relationship. He is calling them in the midst of some kind of interpersonal disagreement to seek unity in the church. Now, we have the same types of disagreements today. Some of them are silly. (laughs) Some of them are more serious in nature. Sometimes we sin against each other. Sometimes there are unintentional hurts that happen. Sometimes there are just disagreements between people that are based on personal preference or based on who gets to make a decision or, or wield a level of influence. We can think of more stories like this and we can joke about them and we can look at some of the serious natures of them, but we know that ongoing disagreements in the life of the church hinder peace and unity. And so there's a specific charge that Paul gives to these two women and by extension to all Christians when it comes to relationships in the church. He says, I entreat these two women to agree in the Lord. Look with me at verse two. To agree in the Lord. And this isn't just some casual Christian cliche. To agree in the Lord means to adopt a mental attitude that moves in the same direction as other believers. It means to adopt the same orientation. To agree in the Lord means to adopt a gospel orientation when it comes to the relationship dynamics of the church. And so, if you find yourself as a victim of hurt... (laughs) intentional or unintentional, if you find your preferences being challenged, if you find yourself in relational discord with other members of the family of God, the charge is to agree in the Lord. And what does that mean? It means to ask yourself, what response would best represent the gospel of Jesus in this situation? What would advance the cause of the gospel even in the midst of our personal discord. Agree in the Lord. That is a way of saying, let God in to reign in that pocket of your life. Because 
Where that happens, peace happens. Peace of God rests where the God of peace reigns. The second pocket of life that he looks at, we see in verses four to seven, and that is an area, of course, that we all desire peace. This is within our circumstances of life. You can have peace in your circumstances. And it's probably one of the most difficult things for a Christian to have peace in the midst of God, in the midst of difficulty in this life. And we're not just talking about some kind of vague peace. Remember, we're talking about the peace of God himself. However difficult it is, you need to know that it is possible to have the peace of God even in the most difficult circumstances of your life. It's possible. And Paul tells us how. Some of us read verse four and we see this command, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And some of us think to ourselves immediately, well, that's a rather nice but unattainable goal. Others of us more cynically look at that and say, well, clearly he doesn't understand my marriage. Or clearly... He doesn't appreciate the stress that I'm under at work. Or it's easy to say rejoice in the Lord when you're not the one that has to pay the mortgage at the end of the month. But here we see that Paul commands us to make a choice. A choice to rejoice in God regardless of how well life is going for us. And the choice to rejoice in the Lord, in some ways, this is self-evident for Christians, isn't it? I mean, after all, the gospel of Jesus Christ points us to our greatest threat in this life and the next, the threat of hell. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you're rescued from that threat of hell, the greatest and ongoing threat, and therefore the call to rejoice is self-evident in some ways. But when it comes to our circumstances, day in and day out, this becomes much more difficult. And that's why Paul uses very specific wording. Just like he says to the two women in verse 2 that they are to agree in the Lord, so too Christians are supposed to rejoice in the Lord. That is, this rejoicing of God is not just merely related to singing. (laughs) It's not merely related to style or physical posture, but that the rejoicing that happens through in and out of life is directly related to the ground or the reason why we can rejoice. We choose to rejoice in the Lord. And this charge to rejoice is one that becomes a pattern of your life. Because the opposite pattern of life is our natural instinct. And that is what we normally default to is when things are going well, we rejoice. And we say we're rejoicing in the Lord. Very often we're rejoicing in our circumstances. And when things go poorly, well then there's no cause for rejoice. In those moments we either play the victim or we have a pity party, or if we're particularly mature, we might depend on the Lord even more to pull us out of the depths of despair. But rejoicing is not something that often comes to mind. The charge to rejoice in the Lord, remember, comes from a man who's in prison. It comes from a man 
who has been accused. It comes from a man who's been beaten. It comes from a man who is, if he was choosing his circumstances, would choose something entirely different. And yet he says, rejoice in the Lord, just like I am rejoicing in the Lord. He says, don't let your circumstances dictate your joy. There's a way to live above your circumstances of life. Let the Lord himself be the object of your joy, of your rejoicing. And then, and then, and only then do you have a totally different vehicle for navigating the circumstances of your life. There is a way to live above your circumstances. Nehemiah knew this long before the Apostle Paul when he said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And this isn't just a piece of advice to help you navigate life. Paul actually gives it as a command. And if it's a command, then obedience to the command is possible. And the reason why it's possible to be obedient to this command, to rejoice always, is because the object of rejoicing, the Lord himself, never changes. You can always rejoice in him. We'll come back to that in a minute. But you'll notice with me that at verse five, he takes a little detour and he talks about how our rejoicing in many ways is related to our reputation. And I want to ask you a question. I wonder what you want to be known for. I think everybody, whether consciously or subconsciously, wants to be known for something. And it's a pretty big question because when you really stop and ponder what those desires for your reputation are, and you really begin to consider how they dictate what you do and don't do, <laughs> what you want to be known for has tremendous influence in your life. So what do you want to be known for? Some of you want to be known as being exceptionally competent in your job. Others of you want to be known for being a good parent, a person who has nice things, a person who is fun or funny, a person who is kind. What do you want to be known for? In verse 5, look with me, Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to all. In other words, a key component of your reputation is that you should be reasonable, or some of your translations might say gentle. The world has enough hard-headed people. There's no shortage of overly aggressive men and women. There are always those who, in the midst of disagreement, will resort to personal attack. And there's always those, when their circumstances are bad, will become completely unreasonable. And the opposite of gentle, they become very harsh. But Paul says, what do you want to be known for? Part of your reputation should be to be known for your gentleness or your reasonableness. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. Because Jesus is near to you in proximity. He's not distant and uninterested in your circumstances. He's right there and his return is imminent. He's coming very soon. So as long as it is up to you, as far as it's up to you, have part of this reputation to be known as a reasonable person. Now, he continues and he gives us this command to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. 
But then he tells us how to do it. It is not a spiritual platitude. It is not a a Christian cliche. You can rejoice in the Lord always, and this is how. Follow the logic with me. If the object of our joy or rejoicing in this life is the Lord himself, and this Lord does not change, then when the circumstances around you change and stress and anxiety and fear begin to overtake you, where do you turn? Well, if your gaze the whole time has been set on your circumstances to provide joy and happiness and even the rejoicing in your relationship with God, well, then it's almost impossible for you to rejoice in the Lord always. However, if your gaze has been ever consistent on the unchanging Lord himself, then no matter how much stuff is happening over here, then, then you will be able to rejoice. I wonder if you've ever been airsick or seasick. Just as a show of hands, let's get the blood flowing. How many of you have experienced seasickness or airsickness? That's a good number of you. Now, when you experience this sensation, there's usually multiple factors that happen that cause you to feel sick in this way. It's, it, it's the motion of the boat or the airplane. It's heat. It's light. It's how you feel yourself with regard to your personal health. It's a variety of factors. I remember flying across the plains of northern Kenya and southern Ethiopia to visit some missionaries, flying in a little prop plane, a Cessna 172, and as we began to descend, I began to feel air sickness. And it wasn't just one factor. We descended, the wind picked up, the plane began to shake, and so the motion was bad. But the bright sunlight had been shining in my eyes for quite some time, and it was about 125 degrees outside, And so it was a little cooler in the cabin because we had some airflow, but it was still very, very hot. And as we began to descend, air sickness began to overtake me. Now, do you know what they tell you to do when you begin to feel the sensation of air sickness or seasickness? Almost inevitably, someone will tell you, look at the horizon line. Because the horizon doesn't move. It's stable. And so as the plane shakes or as the boat rocks back and forth and you begin to feel these factors that are, that are not stable, if you look at the horizon, if you look at the thing that is stable, if you look at the thing that is never changing or never moving, there's a tremendous sense of calm that comes over you. Friends, the same is true in life. When multiple unwanted factors enter into your life, when you sense that stress and anxiety or the seasickness of life that begins to overtake you because turbulence is happening in your arena, where do you look? You look to the horizon. You look to the thing that is stable. You look to the Lord himself who is immovable and unchanging. And that is... Uh, the call of having peace 
in the Christian life, regardless of your circumstances. And the way that you do that is through prayer. That's why verse six, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Prayer becomes the way that you let God reign in that pocket of your circumstance. So when my stress is high, turn to the horizon, pray. When my marriage is difficult, live above my circumstances and pray and rely on God. When my kids are making bad choices, turn and pray to the one who's taking care of your greatest need and who is more than able to take care of your other needs as well. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all of your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Jesus says in John 16, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulations, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You can have peace with God when you let God in. The promise of verse seven And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Peace of God rests where the God of peace reigns. The peace of God rests where the God of peace reigns in all those pockets of your life. You know, we become pretty good at compartmentalizing, don't we? We will let God reign in this pocket and we'll let him reign in this pocket and we'll let him reign in this pocket but maybe not this one this one's off limits and then we wonder why we don't have peace I was talking to a woman after the first service and she gave this great sort of success story of how true this passage is as she was struggling with unforgiveness with a member of her family and the relationship was broken and yet again and again she would cry out to the Lord for the ability to forgive. She wanted God to reign in that pocket of her life. And guess what? He did. And she was able to forgive and she experiences now peace just for the last couple months that she hasn't experienced in years because where the peace of God rests The peace of God rests where the God of peace himself reigns. And so we've talked about one pocket. We've talked about relationships. We've talked about another pocket in our circumstances. But finally, we see in the last section here, verses 8 and 9, an area of peace that's rather unique. And that is, you can have the peace of God in your mind. We all know that there's nothing worse than laying awake at night as our mind races with things that are not right. So let's remind us about what remind ourselves about what Paul says here. He says in verse eight, look at it with me. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things 
and the God of peace will be with you. Think about these things, he says. The battle for the mind is strong, isn't it? And you need to know that when you let God into your mind, the result will be a peace of mind. For so long, the question was, so what do you think about? What do you allow into your mind that you would think about? But I fear that in our time, there's an even more basic question, and that is this. Are you allowing yourself time to think at all? Now that sounds rather silly. I mean, of course I allow myself time to think, but I don't think it's that silly of a question, actually. A new Nielsen Company report reveals that adults in the United States devote about 10 hours and 39 minutes of their day consuming media in front of a screen of some kind. About 81% of adults in the United States have smartphones, and according to this report, the average usage of a smartphone is one hour and 39 minutes a day. 94% of adults in the U.S. have a high-definition television, The average adult in the United States spends four and a half hours a day consuming TV shows and movies. And another study summarizes that the total number of advertisements that adults now are exposed to across all five major media platforms, TV, radio, internet, newspapers, and magazines, the total number of ads that you are exposed to on a daily basis is about 360 ads a day with all of them having a unique message that you're supposed to be able to process, think about, and try to make a choice of whether to buy. And those are, the, those are supposed to be the ancillary things. The ads pop in compared, you know, on the side of all the other things that you're doing and consuming and trying to think about. And so when we say, do you have time to think at all? I don't think it's that absurd of a question. I mean, to really consider important things. Studies are being conducted all the time about how television creates a passive dynamic in the brain. You can only imagine the effect of seeing 22 advertisements an hour and all the messages that you are trying to process. Conversely, we know that one of the more active ways that we engage our brain is through reading, and yet the average American right now spends 19 minutes a day reading. That's it. Do you have time to think? Are you making time to think? If you aren't guarding or disciplined about the input, about the media usage, you will not have time to really truly consider important things. If you want peace in your mind, Paul says, think. (laughs) But don't just think about anything. Don't fall into the trap of just thinking about the next thing that will entertain you or the next thing that will give you most enjoyment. Think about these things, things that are true. Don't allow yourself to ponder 
falsehoods and cultural lies, things that are honorable and just, things that are pure. To be pure means to be not tainted. To think about what is commendable or virtuous. Think about what's lovely. Think about what's excellent. Think about what's praiseworthy to God. And when you practice these things, verse 9 tells us, we'll not just think about them, but thoughts actually inform how we live. Then, verse 9 says, the God of peace will be with you. Do not take so lightly the battle for the mind and what is happening in here because it will inform how you live, what you watch, what you consume, how much you consume, and what you think about. And when you think about these things and practice them, the peace of God will be with you. You see the point, right? The point is that the peace of God rests where the God of peace reigns. And if you want the peace of God in your life, then allow God to reign in all the areas of your life because he is the God of peace. You can have the peace of God in your relationships. You can have the peace of God in your circumstances. You can have the peace of God in your mind. The peace of God rests where the God of peace reigns. And as I close this morning, and as we transition to taking the Lord's Supper together, I want to give a very simple reminder. And that is to have the peace of God in your life presupposes that you are at peace with God. You see, the peace of God comes in your life after you have peace with God himself. And that comes through the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Imagine with me that a man had been in an automobile accident, that his leg was broken and twisted out of his socket, and he tells the doctor, give me a sedative quickly so that I can be at peace and I can rest. I want to sleep. Give me the drug and go on your way. We would all say, what a fool. That peace will only be very short-lived as long as the sedative is there. He'll have rest, maybe, but as, long, as soon as it's gone, he will have no peace. No man in the right mind would ask for such a thing. And yet millions and millions of people are seeking some sort of opiate of peace without addressing the larger cause or the larger issue, which is righteousness. The doctor must set the fracture. He must put the bone back into place, the leg into its socket. And then nature will take its course. He'll receive healing and true peace. And it is certainly the same way in sequence with God dealing with humans. God simply will not allow a person to know true peace until that person first possesses divine righteousness. One of the reasons for the terrible frustration of humankind is that peace and joy are sought after without righteousness. But without the righteousness of God that comes through the forgiveness of Jesus, there can be no peace. And without the peace of God, there can be no joy. Peace with God leads to the peace of God in your circumstances. And then, Christian, you are able to surrender the pockets of your life and let him reign in those ways that you might have the peace of him daily.
as we consider the gospel, the gospel made visible, this is a proclamation that we make regularly in the Lord's Supper, that Jesus died that we might have peace with God, (laughs) that he rose again conquering sin, death, and the devil, that we would have victory as well, that we too would rise again someday, and that as we profess our faith in him, peace with God will result in the peace of God, and we can live lives that are joyous and ever rejoicing. I think of Romans chapter 4 and chapter 5. Romans chapter 4 ends by talking about how we were dead in our sin, but we are made alive in Christ. And at the beginning of chapter 5, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only, that we rejo- not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. And character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's a wonderful summary, isn't it? Peace with God <laughs> through the work of Jesus gives you the ability even to rejoice in your sufferings and see as you look on that steady horizon, the person and work of Jesus, that even though all of this is creating seasickness of life, we can rejoice. And God actually uses those things for our good in the long term. Peace with God results in the peace of God as he reigns in your life. This is what we celebrate. This peace with God is what we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper. And so I want to ask our servers to come forward. And as we take the Lord's Supper today, a couple of reminders for you. Let's hold the bread and the cup together uh, so we can partake of it together. If you're here today and you're a Christian, then by all means, celebrate the gospel made visible for you and celebrate the peace that you have with God. If you are not a Christian, but you want to become one, you want this peace that we're talking about, then let your taking of the Lord's Supper in faith be a proclamation of your new faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And for the rest, we pray that you would abstain and think about these things as the elements pass.